Good morning, brothers and sisters of Community Bible Church. Please turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We are looking at Ephesians 4, and the title of this morning's message is Begging a Unity Walk. Begging a Unity Walk. Well, you've been watching the news lately around the world, and if you have been, you know that Israel has been under attack from Hamas and other Palestinian terrorist organizations since May 10th. However, on Friday, they came to a fragile peace agreement after Israel's Iron Dome defense system had guarded, preserved, and protected Israel, intercepting an estimated 90% of the over 3,000 rockets launched at them by Hamas. They, as a nation, have every right to eagerly preserve their national unity, their national identity, and their national peace. We appreciate that that's what they want to do as a nation. And they did preserve their national unity. However, seemingly, from the world's perspective, in their own strength. And I would just ask you to reflect on that for a moment. In whose strength is Israel protected for and provided? Is it not God alone who made them to be a nation and gave them his promises, his promises of rescue, his promises of identity, his promises of preservation? Who ultimately protects and defends Israel, though they don't honor him in spirit and truth? It is our Heavenly Father. Unity and peace have one source, and that's God alone, who demands our eager worship, even our obedience. God alone is the best uniter of mankind, provider, protector, and defender. And if you're going to have unity and peace in this life, it will only happen in your obedience to his plans and his goals. And so the question for you this morning is, do you know his plans, and do you know his goals for your life? We are at a great verse this morning to talk about goals plans, aims, purpose. We can get so sidetracked in our eager efforts at protecting our own physical possessions and our own family unity in our own strength that we miss our highest calling to walk worthy, eagerly pursuing unity in the Spirit to the building up of Jesus' church to the glory of God. That's how those pieces in life are supposed to be put together. And sometimes we can get them way out of order and throw others of those components away. We get focused on caring for our own needs, our own desires, our own wants, fighting off our own individual enemies like national Israel, that we fail to eagerly keep guard and protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We forget that our identity, brothers and sisters, has been radically changed. We are Christians. We are called into the church for the very purpose of this morning, worship. For service in and among one another. And for proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, the gospel, to those in our community. Is this how we live? Do we live this way radically? Do we live this way marginally? Or do we live this way not at all? The question for us this morning is, what are you eagerly guarding and protecting? I would hope that you reflect on that question as we march through this message this morning. What are you eagerly Guarding and protecting? Are you extremely diligent at keeping and preserving physical, worldly treasures and possessions? Or is your greatest joy and purpose in life found in your eagerness to protect the spiritual treasures that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the salvation that God has applied onto you in the power of the Holy Spirit? What are you eager for? And for what do you have zeal? My generation has been plagued with high, lofty, wild, romantic thoughts about what I call 
the simple farm life. We've been tempted to believe that in order to preserve, keep, and guard the unity of our family, that we need to create independence from the system. Because we all see it. We all see how broken the American system is. It's the best system on the face of the earth. We can see how broken it is. We can see how it's headed toward failure. And for many, this means run. It means run away. Head to the hills of North Idaho as quickly as possible. Get as big a piece of land as you can find and farm that baby. Farm that land. You need to farm. The thinking of many families in my generation is that farming is natural. You see, farming is organic. Farming is environmentally friendly. It's the old way of doing things. It's rustic. And being rustic, it's got skills. So many skills, vast skills that I need and my kids need. We need to have those skills. And moreover, the farm, farming the land will get us off the grid. And we will have independence. We'll have gardens and animals and fruit trees and nut trees and a well and rainwater collection and food storage. And we'll have fencing around all this vast property and we'll have guns and we will have ammo. In these possessions, I ask you, in these possessions, we believe that we will have financial independence, don't we? We believe we'll have educational independence. We believe we'll have economic independence and we will be able to keep and preserve our home, our rights, our freedoms, and our unity. For many, eagerly in pursuit of family unity, independence is the goal and farming is the path. But will farming in North Idaho meet your desire for family unity? That's what I would ask you. Will farming in North Idaho meet your desire for family unity? Will your kids be blessed spiritually in vast amounts of watching mommy and daddy pursue wild independence? Do you arrive at family unity full of love and peace by teaching your children eager independence and off-the-grid living? Have you been tempted in this direction? I have. I have. We spent a couple of years looking for 20-acre parcels of land just north of here. In addition to bothering the heck out of realtors in that pursuit, we, uh, we made it to many 4-H shows because you've got to get in there and rub elbows with the, the, the reals, the locals, you know. And if you're going to go to 4-H shows, you can't miss. If you're going to be a homesteader worth your salt, you, you can't miss the Cheney Rodeo. You've got to get out and go to the Cheney Rodeo, too. And here we are. All these days later, still stuck in the American system, as dependent as ever on Rosas and Costco <laughs> and the Home Depot. We don't have independence, and neither do you. But we do have unity. We have unity in the spirit. We have unity in the spirit at home and unity in the spirit at church. And with my heart of hearts, I believe I got everything that I need. I believe I've done well to protect my family by pursuing unity in the spirit, unity in the family, unity at home, and unity in the church. You talk about a great exchange, there it is, right there. Trading worldly independence for spiritual unity in home and church. I praise God that he fixed our hope and seal and focus on this. His bride, the church, and our need to participate by diligently preserving the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. What an incredible and transformative life verse we've arrived at in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. 
The woods of North Idaho are great for you, for tranquility and peace. Go there and enjoy them. And if you want to farm the land, farm to your heart's content. That's, that's not what my point is. My point is this. Don't miss it. Independence in this life is a vain pursuit. You're tied to a body. You're tied to a body. Our greatest joy in this life are found supernaturally, spiritually, when we eagerly engage in preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in a local church. Are you dependent on the gathering of the saints? Isn't that the takeaway from 2020? Are you dependent on the faithful proclamation of the word? Isn't that what you learned in 2022? Are you dependent on the joy of fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is the Lord continually inflaming your heart to a worthy, humble walk with all zeal and eagerness to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with your church family? You want unity in your family? Good. You believe that that's a good desire for you to have? You're right, it is. But don't you ever miss, don't you ever miss this. Matthew 6.33 clears it all up. Jesus said, You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then all the other things of life will be added to you. You're in Ephesians chapter 4. Where Paul has moved from teaching our wealth and salvation to commanding our walk. From explaining our beliefs in chapters 1 to 3 to commanding our behaviors in chapters 4 through 6. Where we used to sow and reap all the wicked deeds and desires of our hearts. Now in Christ we have been called to sow and reap spiritual fruit and spiritual righteousness. We've been called to the Father's eternal plantation if you will. Where we are spiritual farmers seeking a spiritual harvest, even the harvest that is called the glory of God. Read with me the text from chapter 4, and we'll read all the way through, verses 1 through 16. And as we do, note this. The glorious spiritual fruit harvest that Paul expects is found in verses 13 through 16. And it comes only after Paul explains the many spiritual blessings that we have in verses 4 through 12. And the blessings come on the heels of Paul's command to walk worthy of our calling in chapters or in verses 1 through 3. The text can be broken out body guarding in 1 to 3, body blessings in 4 to 12, and body building in 13 through 16. Spiritual fruit is the end. That's where we're going. And Paul commands us to labor diligently then to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I can only envision the diligent preservation of the land engaged in by the hardworking farmer who exhausts every effort in the care of his field for a fruitful harvest. Have that imagery in your mind. Brothers and sisters, we've been entrusted with a field called the unity of the Spirit. You don't have to go up to North Idaho to find it. You don't have to go up north into Elk, Washington or Chatterton. We, we are playing ball on a, on a field called the unity of the Spirit. This is the patch of land that God wants you to engage in. Let's read together now that we might faithfully and joyfully receive the commands and goals of our faith, leading to a glorious spiritual fruit harvest, all for God's glory. We'll read the text, we'll circle back around, we'll discuss a worthy walk, and this idea of spiritual farming from verses four, from chapter 4, verse 3, I should say. Read together with me the text. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling into which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Praise God. But to each one of us was given a gift according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, 
When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Until the goal, right, the goal, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Feel the weight of that one. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, which is custom, it's custom, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You have a place here. We're a custom body being built up in love. Brothers and sisters, as I read through the text, this to me is the sound of spiritual farming. That's what I read. Follow the principles. Sow the seeds. Harvest the glory of God. In chapter 4, verse 1, we are commanded to walk worthy of our calling as spiritual farmers, you could say. In chapter 4, verse 3, we are to labor to preserve the unity of the Spirit, tilling the soil, planting the seeds, through the hard attitudes of humility, gentleness, patience, and tolerance and love. And by the time you arrive at chapter 4, verse 13, we arrive at the harvest, attaining the unity of the faith prescribed and desired for us, arriving at the fullness of Christ. And verse 16 tells us producing the growth of the body, even the building up of itself in love. How can Paul make these spiritual farming demands of us? This is, this is an important part. If you haven't been here with us, I'm going to walk us back. You turn to Ephesians 1. I want you to think about this. This is important. You get this massive division in the text between the indicatives, the statements of facts, and the imperatives, the, the statements of command, the commands. And, and, the, and this bridge, Paul launches across this bridge. How does he get to do it? Why does he get to do it? Why does he get to tell you what to do? Why should you listen to Paul? I'll tell you why. Chapter four, chapter one, verse one, or chapter one, verse four. That's what we're going to look at first. I gave you an acronym. The acronym is EARS. You must be given EARS to hear. E-A-R-S for election, adoption, redemption, and salvation. We must be given EARS to hear by God because you're born spiritually dead, bankrupt. You can't hear. This, this word of God doesn't make sense to you. You have to be given EARS to hear by God. And that's what we find in Ephesians chapter 1. We find Paul speaking about God's view of salvation. Where? God views salvation this way. Chapter 1 verse 4. God chose us. That is to say, in the Greek, electos, he elected us from eternity past to be spiritual farmers for his eternal glory. In chapter 1, verse 5, God predestined us to adoption as sons. Even, verse 7, redeeming us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of our sins found in his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And you go to verse 13 of chapter 1. He gave us ears to hear, God did, to hear the gospel of our salvation. And God sealed us to himself through the Holy Spirit of promise. Fully equipping us in our inner man to deliver spiritual works of righteousness for his glory. It should be no surprise then to anyone that if God has called us to spiritual life for his glory, that he will faithfully command us to succeed in our spiritual farming efforts. You see, God is a coach. 
And when he calls you onto his team, he gives you the jersey of salvation. Pretenders show up wearing the jersey that looks just like the one the coach gives you, but in salvation, God gives you the jersey. You don't, you don't claim the jersey, you don't call the jersey, you can't buy it at sports authority. God gave you the jersey. And when he gives you the jersey, he knows all the tasks that he has for you. And he has the right place for you to be on the field. And he expects you to be at practice, and he expects you to be at the game. He's your great coach. He also expects us to be farming. Farming for his glory. All that's required for this farming, all that's required to play on his team is attentiveness and obedience to his instructions. You would do that for your soccer coach in high school. God's asking you to do it here in the church for him, for his glory. Having told us how we became spiritual farmers of God's glory in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, Paul confronts us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He confronts us with three commands of our calling so that our behavior might match the glory of our beliefs. If you understand anything of the glory of our beliefs in chapters 1 through 3, you should desire to have behavior that matches that glory. And Paul's going to call you to it. That's what he does. Paul demands in chapter 4, verse 1, that you walk worthy of the calling in which you've been called. In chapter 4, verse 2, he asks you to walk virtuously. And in chapter 4, verse 3, he demands that you walk in unity. That's what we see in the text. These commands set the tone and the pace for us all spiritual instruction that we'll receive in chapters 4, 5, and 6 from Paul. But these ones here, in verses 1 through 3, these are the premier instructions for a worthy walk and for spiritual farming to the glory of God. These commands perfectly combine the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Boy, and you see it in this verse, they're smashed together. As our eager efforts in righteousness and obedience contribute to... We contribute? We contribute to a spiritual harvest of God's glory, which was eternally planned by God. That's his plan. I'm just trying to be faithful and walk the road with him, and I love it. I love that this is what he wanted for us. Today we are focused specifically on Paul's third command in verse 3. This third command of our calling, Paul is begging we walk in the unity of the Spirit. He is begging a unity walk. So as we walk through these commands of Paul over the last three weeks, we find ourselves at this third command, which I could say it's number three, but walk in unity. Walk in unity. This is what our whole day is going to be talking about, walk in unity. I'll have two sub-points later on, but I want you to first just consider with me walking in unity. Where do we see this in the text? Read it again with me. Paul commands us to walk worthy of our calling, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's your command. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, it's highly possible that I've confused you with my talk of spiritual farming. I get that. I get that. I understand. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, Oliver, why are you mixing metaphors? Paul is all over a worthy walk. That's what he wants. This, this, this text is, is broken up into sections based off this word walk. Parapateo, walk, walk. You're right. You're, I'm not arguing with you. And you're probably thinking, why all the spiritual farming talk? Where does it come from? Well, let me tell you. Spiritual farming comes from the verbs that Paul uses in his command in chapter 4, verse 3. Being diligent to preserve. These verbs. I want to look at them with you. Here we have two verbs working together, which present the picture of farming. At least for me, I want to give that picture to you as well. It's a picture of farming because it's a, it's a look at cultivation. It's a look at hard work. It's a look at laboring long to conserve the possessions that require stewardship, planning, and intentionality. We see in these verbs the commitment, the focus, the persistence, and the rugged labor of the hardworking farmer cultivating his patch of God's earth with skill and care, planting and watering and harvesting a fruitful crop. 
Preserve is the Greek word tereo, which means to keep, to guard, observe, or to preserve something that already exists. And that's the money line right there. To preserve something that already exists. Hold on to that. To preserve something that already exists. Turn your Bibles to John 8. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. When thinking about preservation, keeping, and guarding, consider how often these words show up in the Scriptures. Specifically, we could go to the Proverbs. Consider Solomon using these words, this keeping, preserving, guarding, when he talks to his son. Proverbs 3.1 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Tereo, in the Septuagint. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. Watch over, Tereo, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows springs of life. Proverbs 13, 3. The, the one who guards his mouth preserves, tereo, keeps, preserves, guards his life. In Solomon's commands, we see spiritual farming by way of protection and supervision of God's gifts, which ultimately come from God, these gifts, this protection. Protect your mouth, protect your heart, guard, watch over, keep, preserve, keep my commandments. Your heart is a gift of God. Your mouth is a gift of God. Your life is a gift of God. God's commandments are gifts of God. You're in John chapter 8, where Jesus shares his thoughts about keeping and preserving gifts of God. This is the last day in John chapter 8 of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, when Jesus enraged the Pharisees at the high point of the festival during the candle lighting celebration, announcing to the crowd, the crowd who had their lanterns out, the crowd whose lanterns were filled with fresh-pressed olive oil. The crowd who had just lit the wicks of their lanterns. And with all this light going up all around the city, as evening had set in in Jerusalem, Jesus says in John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. And he wasn't finished infuriating the Pharisees. Look at verse 8, or chapter 8, verse 51. Look at verse 51. In 851, Jesus makes an incredible offer to all who are listening, saying emphatically, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps tereo, keeps, guards, preserves, if anyone keeps my word, he will never die. On what basis can Jesus make this offer? Look at verse 55, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, saying to them, You have not come to know God, who is my Father, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Jesus is a keeper of the word of God. Jesus commands that we keep his words and never see death. Keeping is preservation of a gift of God that already exists. His word already exists. His commands already exist. Your form, your frame, your being with your mouth and your heart, it already exists because God made you. Consider Jesus' command in John 14, 15, where he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Turn back to Ephesians 4. You know, whether it's Solomon or Jesus or even Paul here in Ephesians 4, the biblical notion of keeping involves stewardship of a gift of God. As such, spiritual farming, I believe, is excellent imagery. I want you to hold on to spiritual farming. A worthy walk? Absolutely. A worthy walk? Unquestionably. Chapter 4, verse 3. Spiritual farming. This spiritual farming imagery originates for me and for the Bible way back in the beginning, way back in the Garden of Eden. 
More than imagery, farming was Adam's task. As we read in Genesis 2.15, Moses says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. Those two commands, cultivating and keeping, that's what Adam had to do. That was his job. So what's the biblical principle? We were made to be tasked by God for his glory. That's why you're here. It's the whole purpose of your life. You were made by God to be tasked for his glory. We were made spiritual farmers in the kingdom of God to be found cultivating, keeping, and preserving production of God's glory eternally. Consider that. Consider that. Consider the grand glory harvest that God wants from our spiritual farming. He deserves a grand harvest, does he not? God made us free will beings. He most certainly did. In his image and his likeness, and according to his likeness, we know all about glory because he made us to know about glory. We just want the glory for ourselves. But our form, brothers and sisters, our form and our frame are built for farming and cultivating not our own glory. That's where the trouble lies. That's where the trouble lied with Adam and Eve. Our form and our frame are built for farming and cultivating God's glory out of the possessions and field of life that he's given us. And I just think about your field of life and your possessions and my field of life and my possessions. And I just want you to think about that for a second. I want you to think this thought. Oh, Lord God, how I have misused your possessions that you've given me and the field of life in which you've given me to live. There's so much more glory that is due your name. You know, moreover, it's not enough to just farm spiritual fields of the kingdom of God. It's not enough to just farm those spiritual fields and have some kind of woe is me, whatever, I guess so attitude. You know this kind of attitude. It's the attitude that resides in the hearts of most 17-year-old boys. But not these guys over here. <laughs> these guys are hard workers. They don't have a, a whatsoever, I don't care, I guess so kind of attitude. But often we do as Christians. You can't go around in God's spiritual farming fields moping, lazy, and disinterested. What attitude is demanded of our farming, keeping, and preserving of God's gifts? How shall our heart and mind respond to God's commands to get His glory? Paul says, be diligent. And the Greek word here is spudazo. Everybody say spudazo. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it means to be eager, to make haste, to spare no effort. It gives the sense of having zeal or diligence. Marcus Barth says, It is hardly possible to render exactly the urgency contained in the underlying Greek verb. Not only haste and passion, but a full effort of the whole man is meant involving his will, his sentiment, his reason, his physical strength, and his total attitude. You know, when you watch these young men and these young ladies that serve our church, that's what you get. With the quote that I just read from Marcus Barth, that's what you get from them. I thank you guys for that. It's just wonderful to see your zeal and your diligence, the, the, the totality of your being being put into service to God. Wives use spodazo to make sure their husbands get home on time when company's there. Your older kids use spodazo to get the family into the car to get to church on time. It's a hurry up and do it type word. Get after it. Be all about it. Let's go. In French, the word is nous allons. In Spaniards, they would say vamos. And the Greeks say spudazo. Paul says to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent, spudazo. To present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed. Accurately handling the word of truth. Peter opens his second letter with the urgency of spudazo, saying in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, 
Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. This is the third command of Paul in chapter 4. Be diligent to preserve unity. Chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4, verse 1, walk worthy. Chapter 4, verse 2, walk virtuously. Chapter 4, verse 3, walk in unity, which I said is spiritual farming. Yes, we're going to mix metaphors. Yes, you're going to get the walking, and you're going to get the farming. You're going to get the keeping. You're going to get the cultivating. What, then, is the object of the farming? What is the object of the farming? What is it that we were supposed to be farming? What has God given us as a gift that we must keep, cultivate, and preserve? Well, this is where we move to another outline in your notes. Paul requires that we preserve two prized possessions of God giving us our ultimate goal, and God all the glory. Paul requires that we preserve two prized possessions of God, that giving us our ultimate goal in life, and God all of his glory. Paul demands that we guard and cultivate two Trinitarian treasures to arrive at the unity of the church, through unity with the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. What two prized possessions of God require our preservation and spiritual farming? You know, as I wrote that question, and as I think about it, <laughs> this is, we're headed into comedy hour, folks. I mean, really, this is like comedy. How awkward is this? Did, did you hear the question? What two prized possessions of God, right, his, that he owns, require our preservation and spiritual farming? Can, can you see the tension there? This is awkward. What, what possession of God requires any help at all? Verse 4-3 is the total smashing together of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And, and I look at this and I just go, wow, why did you want to do it this way? If you wanted glory, just, just slam your hand down and make glory. But he made you. And he made me. And this is perfect in his sight. This is exactly what he wants. And so I, I have to ask this silly question, this comedy hour question again. What two prized possessions of God require our preservation and spiritual farming? Okay, now, now, we're, going, now we're going into the Trinity, the person of God. Number one, the Spirit's field of unity. Number one, the first prized possession of God is the Spirit's field of unity. Number two, the second prized possession of God is the Son's boundary of peace. The Spirit's field of unity... And the Son's boundary of peace, these two prized possessions of God. Chapter 4, verse 3 is like a life verse. It's, a, it's got the goal of your life, the aim of your life. The focus of your whole life is, is found in chapter 4, verse 3. If you ever will produce the glory of God in your life, your actions would necessarily have to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let's consider both the prized possessions and the seeming impossibility that we, mere men and women, would be called on by God to keep to farm and to preserve such prized Trinitarian treasures. Then number one in your notes here, this first prized possession of God, the Spirit's field of unity. The Spirit's field of unity. He's the owner of unity. Constantine the Great was emperor of Rome from 306 A.D. to 337 A.D. He was raised during a time of heavy Christian persecution under Emperor Diocletian. He was the son of a Roman army officer himself and was groomed for the purpose of Roman leadership. No one expected Constantine would be influenced by Christianity, nor that God would ever save him, but God did just that. 
Diocletian had divided the Roman Empire into East and West around 285 AD, and it stayed that way until the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. According to historian Eusebius, Constantine and several soldiers were given a vision from God that they would win the battle against Maxentius at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge if they united their army under the first two letters in Jesus' title, Christ. Jesus' title, Christ, in, Greek, in the Greek alphabet, is spelled with the words chi and rho, which to you looks like an X and a P. Put those two things on the shield, and we'll be united, and we'll have victory. That's what they believed, that this was a sign for them of unity and their solidarity. And so the question is, if you paint the, the chi and the rho, the X and the P on your, on your shields, will it give you victory? How did it work out for them? Did they find great unity in their vision from Christ and these Greek letters painted on their shields? Yes, they did. They found great success. Constantine beat Maxentius and returned home to Rome as the sole ruler of the entire, undivided now, Roman Empire. And with this newfound faith in Christ, Constantine united the Roman Empire himself, even ending the persecution of Christians at 313 AD with the Edict of Milan. Constantine the Great was a great uniter for Rome and for Christianity. Does unity require a dream? Does unity require a fancy symbol or logoed merchandise? Now, before we get too far, I do like logoed merchandise. If you want to get a CBC polo for me, it's fantastic. But no, no, unity does not originate in dreams, doesn't require symbolic merchandise, nor is unity found exclusively in military victories and battles won. Unity, brothers and sisters, is a prized possession of God, and it is owned and operated by the Holy Spirit of God. If we experience unity in this building, if we experience unity in our church, it is because God, through his Holy Spirit, the owner and operator, has afforded it to us. And the expectation of Paul is that you know the unity of the Spirit, that you know that you are living spiritually on the Spirit's field of unity. That you know that your job is to farm the field of the Holy Spirit's unity on which God has allowed you to play ball because God saved you for this purpose. He didn't give you a partial salvation. He didn't ask you to save yourself. God snatched you out of the pit of your own hell and put you on this field, the field of the Spirit's unity. And you're being told now, you are being told, play ball. Form the land of the Spirit's unity. That's what you're being told. When Paul says in chapter 4, verse 3, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit, he's saying, I know you, man. You're no different than me. I know the salvation you received in Christ. I know it was a total gift of God. You did nothing to be saved. God did everything because he wrote your name on his book in eternity past and he acted it out on you in his time. Lucky for you, he didn't delay another day. He did it on his time. He did it perfectly. And because I know you, and because I know the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, I would ask you the question, do you know him? Is he a little guy that comes out to play on Sunday morning right after you enter the church building? Or is he a big guy that dominates your life, heart, and mind? Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 
For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Because of the vast unity in this glorious third person of God, the Holy Spirit, Paul can and should have expectations of our behavior. He knows who lives inside of us. And does that same Holy Spirit that lives in Paul, does that same Holy Spirit that lives in me, does that same Holy Spirit live in you? This Holy Spirit is our uniter. Unity is his job. It's his field of expertise. He owns all unity. He is our helper. He's the restrainer of all of our evil ways. Jesus said to the disciples on the night of his crucifixion, the night of glory, I like to call it, in John 16, verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage if I, Jesus, go away from you. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And in verse 13 of chapter 16 of John, Jesus said, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. You're in Acts chapter 1, verse 5. This is just days later. Look at what Jesus promises the apostles, all who believe in him, and all those who believe in Jesus in this verse. In Acts chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus says to the disciples, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, he tells them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's us. We're right there in the verse. We're right there on Jesus' mind. The same unity, the same Spirit overflowing every single one of us. He is the glue that holds us all together. He is the power that causes our righteous actions and the endurance of our faith. You do not endure in and of your own self. You endure because the Spirit lives inside of you. And His unity is the field on which we have been called to be spiritual farmers for the glory of God, harvesting greater and greater unity among ourselves. We are, better, we are in better shape, brothers and sisters, than Adam and Eve, than Moses, Noah, David, Solomon. We're in better shape than any one of them. You think of the, the, the circumstances that beset their life. Our circumstances are better. Turn to John 17. Turn to John 17. Our, our circumstances are better. You know, even with rockets being fired into Israel this past several weeks, even with the potential collapse of the American economy because of hyperinflation and the printing of fake money. Even with transgender females dominating women's athletics and all the other hosts and hosts and hosts of crazy that exist right outside these doors that you engage with every day, even in your offices, even in your place of business, even in your families, even with the host of all that chaos, we have God's absolute best in the indwelling Holy Spirit. David didn't have that. Solomon didn't have that. Noah didn't have that. They knew what regeneration was. Unquestionably, those men were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And he came upon them. But we have a Holy Spirit who indwells us. We have the Holy Spirit of the living God who makes his unity available to us every second of every day, connecting us to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. His indwelling us is exactly the provision that I want you to see that Jesus prayed for in John 17, 11. Jesus prayed in verse 11... I am no longer in the world. 
and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Look at verse 22 and 23. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Where does the love of God come from other than this? That he, because of the death of Christ and the atoning sacrifice of Christ, that he sent his Holy Spirit to live in you. Are you asking, are you thinking that the love of God needs to be bigger than that? That's the greatest love that he had to offer. And it's also the fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. It's the very fulfillment of Jesus' prayer. The Father lovingly answered the Son's request, sending his Spirit to live inside of us. Twitter is an interesting internet platform. It's a powerful communication tool that currently unites 330 million users. Though they offer unity only in the form of 280 character messages or less. These short little messages, right? Aim to create unity and spread wonderful thoughts and ideas. Probably about 20% of them might be of half value to you. Meanwhile, the Holy Spirit unites more than 330 million. Simultaneously, living but also the living who are in the spirit realm. Think of how much unity comes from the Holy Spirit of the living God. Far more than 330 million people united. Not in characters. Not in, not in A, Bs, and Cs, and Ds. Not in, not in characters, but in intellect. This is the way the Holy Spirit then unites us. Intellect. Emotion. Will. Heart. Mind. Voice. You think of the character qualities of Christ. The Holy Spirit unites us. Humility, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He unites us. Galatians chapter 5, 22. These are the attitudes that dominate our hearts as spiritual farmers on the spiritual field, on the Spirit's field of unity, I should say. And I just want you to consider how crazy this is. This is crazy talk. Our, our job is to preserve God's indestructible, inexhaustible prized possession, unity of the Spirit. Can you hear how crazy that sounds? Our job is to preserve God's indestructible, inexhaustible prized possession, the unity of the Spirit. And that's not it. That's not it. There's a second prized possession of God that we are called to preserve as well. Second in your notes. The Son's boundary of peace. The Son's boundary of peace. The second prized possession of God, given for his glory and as a goal for our lives, is the Son's boundary of peace. Preserving the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace. Now, here's a, here's a question for you. How many of you have family relationships in which you have zero unity? Maybe one over here, okay, and one in the back over there, okay. This, this, this is only for a couple of you, I guess. <laughs> Can I tell you why those family relationships have zero unity? It's this reason. It's because somebody does not have the king of peace dominating their life. When Jesus is not on the throne of a family member's heart, they are unable to repent of their sins, ask for forgiveness, or forgive you for your sins. And I don't know how you start any relationships if those things ain't happening. 
John Scott paints the paints a family portrait well in his commentary when he speaks of the Smith family. Okay? This is not anybody in our congregation. It's, not. it's from a commentary. John Stott, the Smith family. I'm going to give this to you. He says, imagine a couple called Mr. and Mrs. John Smith and their three sons, Tom, Dick, and Harry. They are one family, are they not? Yes. Marriage and parenthood have united them as a family. But in the course of time, the Smith family disintegrates. Father and mother quarrel until they finally get a divorce. The three boys also quarrel, first with their parents and then with each other, and they all separate. Tom goes to live in Canada as a Royal Canadian Mounted Police with his anger pulling Christians out of their churches. That's, that's additional. <laughs> Dick in South Africa, and Harry goes to Australia. They never meet, write, or call one another ever. They lose contact with each other Intentionally, altogether, purposefully. This is ultimate disunity in this family. And so John Stott asks the question, suppose that you meet one of the Smith boys or one of the Smith parents at work or somewhere on the street, maybe begging your groceries. And suppose that maybe you're the aunt or the cousin in the Smith family. What would you do? If you knew this was the scenario, what would you do? Are you to just be satisfied with the Smith family disintegration? Do you actually consider them to still be a family? Because, after all, they're still blood. No, John Stott says, no. No. This would not satisfy your mind, your heart, or your conscience as a Christian. Stott says, we would urge them to maintain the unity of the family by means of the bond of peace that is, to demonstrate their family unity by repenting and getting reconciled to one another. Family disunity has a solution, brothers and sisters. Unity is available and worthy of pursuit. But never miss this fact. True family unity is only found inside the boundary of peace. Inside the boundary of peace. A blood relationship is not enough to unite a broken family. King peace must reign in hearts. In chapter 4, verse 3, Paul demands we preserve the unity of the Spirit, but he qualifies our preservation efforts by saying, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What is the bond of peace? Where does it come from? Why is it needed to qualify unity? Here's why. Unity will only ever be known in the context of the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 with me. And let me show you how instrumental Jesus is to peace and unity. Unity has a boundary. Unity has a limit. Unity has a perimeter. Unity is enclosed by a barrier, the bond of peace. Peace is the barrier that divides unity from disunity. And more than dividing, peace acts like the belt for the garment that is unity. Peace holds unity in. It holds it together. Like the way many of our belts are holding us all in together. That's what peace does to unity. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15, Paul speaks about peace, even giving peace a name. Who is peace? In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Read with me. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
For he himself is our peace, who made both groups, the Jew and the Gentile, into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which in the law, which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. Unity does not extend past the person of Christ. Unity does not extend past the quality of peace that is Christ. In fact, unity will only ever be found in peace, which is to say it will be found inside the boundary of Jesus Christ. The Greek word here is sundesmos. It's the same word that Paul uses in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1, when he's talking about himself being a prisoner in chains, bound in chains, shackled. The only difference is that Soon Desmos, he's slapped again his favorite prefix, soon, S-U-N, onto the front of this word for prisoner, making soon Desmos, which means to bind together or to chain together. What is the result? We'll turn back to Ephesians 4. What is the result? Unity is chained together with peace. Unity is the field. Peace is the fence. We are spiritual farmers who have been pulled out of our disunity and out of our spiritual death, having been chained to our evil deeds and wicked ways, but God made us alive together with Christ. By grace we have been saved. God breathed spiritual life into us and escorted us to the door in the fence of the field of peace. The door in the fence of the, of the field of peace, this door he's escorted us to called peace. And he opened the door. He opened the door, God did. And he walked us into the fullness of unity with him. This is a personal unity, a loving unity. Unity between God and man. Unity with the Father and the Son. And as a result, we have unity with all those who believe. We have unity with all those who have come to understand that God gave you ears to hear. That you were over there dead, bankrupt, empty, lost, broken. With no hope and without God in the world. And that God has lifted you up. Breathe life into your dead body and placed you into the field of the Spirit's unity, where now you can live to produce the glory of God in the bonds of peace like he's desired. Christianity is not a faith with individual beliefs and individual pursuits. We have a corpus of knowledge given to us in the Scriptures. There's not an opportunity for you to have independence in Christianity. That's not the point. The point is the togetherness. Ours is a faith of unity, of oneness. Read the oneness with me of our faith in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. One, one, one. We were built for unity. The oneness, the solidarity, the singularity that is found in the Godhead itself. As we close our time, turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. There is no division in God. He is one essence, one nature, but three persons. And we see in that the beauty of diversity and unity in his person. And his plan has always been to foreknow us, to elect us, to draw us, to call us, to redeem us, to adopt us, to save us from our sins. He is a God, both just and justifier, the justifier, the one who has faith in him, according to Romans 3.26. Our faith is exclusive at this point. The point of our oneness to God in Christ through the Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, 
And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which men must be saved. And in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul makes a legal declaration of our oneness with God through the blood of his Son, saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You might ask then, is there a possibility, Oliver, is there a possibility that this salvation, that this peace, that this unity, that this oneness could ever be revoked, removed, replaced, stripped away, taken from me? Is there any possibility? No. No, there's not. Read with me the certainty of our eternal oneness with God from Romans chapter 8, verses 35 and 39, where Paul says emphatically, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to the death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our salvation, our oneness with God, our peace with God is eternal. It's eternal. It started in eternity past. You had to live your life until the moment when God said, here's your salvation, your mind come to me. Be a spiritual farmer on my field. Reap a harvest of glory and righteousness in my world, on my terms. We find that we are his prized possessions as well then. And he shared his prized possessions with us. We were always on his mind from the foundation of the world. And it's not a surprise then as his prized possessions that he's given us these prized possessions to be stewards over. The unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. He asks only for our diligence to preserve his glorious gift. And we think what a marvel, what a miracle. There's a spiritual farming that we need to be doing, brothers and sisters, on the Spirit's field of unity, within the Son's boundary of peace. There is a spiritual fruit, harvest, that is the glory of God that we must be diligent to keep, cultivate, guard, and preserve with our eager efforts. This is our great joy, to know God, to know His peace, to know His unity. How should we respond to these truths? I would give you three responses. First, I would tell you to rest. First, I would tell you to rest. You've been given significance in this life, purpose, meaning, goals, and tasks by God. Rest in those. Rest with certainty that God's way is the only way, that His plans and His commands are the best, that in Him you have all that you need. God's gifts and commands are not burdens to you. Rather, they are the fullness of your joy, your peace and love to grow. Rest in them. You don't need independence from the system. You don't need sheep and cattle on a farm up in North Idaho. You don't need to build a Christian nation like Constantine did. You don't need that because even we see in that it will crumble. And your farm in North Idaho will crumble. The kids will sell it for a couple million bucks and take off to New York anyway. (laughs) You don't need to run from the hard trying, difficult circumstances of your life. You don't need those things. You need to remain right where you are at and rest in the salvation, unity, and peace which God so richly supplied to you. Why stir up more anxious thoughts which distract your mind from God's gift of grace? Why not rather rest in the complete oneness God has supplied you to be with Him? 
And in your rest, when you rise, why not rise and stir up more love for the brothers, more unity, and more peace in Jesus' church? Second, I would give you this, a second response. I would give you obedience. If it really is the case that you are not your own and that you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, then two very different but complementary truths exist in your heart and mind and must. You don't hold that your faith is something that you grasp on your own. It's something that Christ gave you. You should have love of Christ to keep his commands. Sovereignty. Responsibility. Keeping commands is is not a salvation issue. It's an issue of love and obedience. So don't be like Constantine the Great in this sense. He was a superstitious man at the Milvian Bridge, was he not? He was a superstitious man all the way to his death. Even in his obedience. Superstitious. He was trained to believe that delaying baptism would keep him from the punishment of his sins. But only the sins that committed before baptism. Every sin after that, he would have to pay for in purgatory. And so he withheld his obedience to God in baptism until the day just before he died, on May 22nd, 337 A.D. Don't be like Constantine. Don't be superstitious with our faith. Don't delay your obedience, whether to baptism or any other obedience that you owe Christ. If you have delayed your obedience, end your delay. Obey Christ. Eagerly apply your full effort to preservation of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace among us. And last, I will give you this, effort. Effort. Our third response needs to be effort. The French, I told you, say, nous allons. Let us go. And the Spaniards say, vamonos. And the Greeks say, spudazo. Brothers, these are the words of command that tell us to go, to do our faith. Where's your zeal? Where's your diligence? Where's your eagerness to be about God's business? You know, I think about Constantine and his salvation. Constantine, 13 years after he was saved, he held the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. This council was one of the most theologically important discussions the church has ever faced. And this 13-year-old baby Christian did this in his superstition. Oh, wow. How much joy awaits us when we commit to Christ's church, sparing no expense for God's glory and our good? How tied up with building our own kingdoms have we become? How eager are you to be in your own pursuits, in your own hobbies, in your homes, and even in your homesteading? Would you give it all up for the church? Would you give it all up for the church? You know, that's an interesting question to ask as we close our time. Because I believe that many, many Christians have faced that very question. And filled with the Spirit of God, they chose unity and found peace in the church when chaos was all around them. To the praise and glory of our Lord and Savior and the Spirit that works inside of us. Father in heaven, let these things convict our hearts, convict our minds. Let us look at Ephesians 4.3 as a life verse. Let us see, Father, the need to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace and take this with us and treasure this the whole course of our lives. Being these spiritual farmers that you've called us to be, let us walk worthy before you. Let us do that now in song, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.